As John mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, the passage that Christian read for our Advent reading is also the sermon text um, for today. It's about the, the uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph heading off to Egypt and then coming back. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we stand here this morning. We have come to, to, to worship you. We have come to draw closer to you, to honor you. We recognize that you are the primary audience. Uh, <clears throat> it is my responsibility to preach before you and to declare your message. So, Lord, nobody came here this morning for a history lesson. We came here for you, and I pray that you would make that happen today because, uh, Lord, I certainly need your help. And we all need your help in this. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Now, you'll understand that prayer here in a couple of minutes. And for the past uh, however many months, um, life has, has gotten really, really difficult for Joseph. His fiancée shows up pregnant. He knows the baby's not his. She claims that she's still a virgin. She, she, she claims that she's never been with, a, with another man. But Joseph doesn't believe her, obviously. That was until... Late at night, he's, he receives an, an angelic visit from an angel of the Lord comes to him. He assures him that Mary really is telling the truth, that, that this child has been conceived uniquely by, by the Holy Spirit. So he endures and enters into the humiliation of it all and goes ahead and takes her before his family and his friends and his community. He takes her as his, as his wife. And then just before... The babies do. Some crazy nut job in Rome decides to have a census that forces him to take Mary, you know, nine months pregnant, on a hundred-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that he can register his new family in the, in the town of his, of his family heritage, which was Bethlehem. Now, on top of that, all kinds of bizarre things have been happening to him over the last several months. Mary also received an angelic visit. Uh, Mary's cousin Elizabeth had some really strange things to say about, about her pregnancy. On the night Jesus was born, a group of shepherds showed up, a dirty shepherds showed up, and claiming that they had had some crazy experience that, and they had come to worship this, this newborn child. And then when they went to the temple to have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, they run into a guy by the name of Simeon and some old lady, and, and they have all these wild things to say about that Jesus is the Messiah. And, uh, and now, out of the blue, a group of, of wealthy men, a, a group of wealthy magi, show up at their front door. However much later this was, we don't know. But they are claiming that they have traveled from the east, and they are there to bow down and worship baby Jesus. And they left behind expensive gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. As I said, this has been a really long and hard season in Joseph's life, but through it all, he has remained faithful. He has demonstrated trust in the Lord. And now it's finally paying off. Because of these gifts, he no longer has to worry about how he's going to pay the rent, how he's going to feed his family. Uh, for the first time in a long time, he's at peace. He can relax, and he's fast asleep. <laughs> and then he receives another angelic visit. 
And whether it's the same angel as before or the one that will come to him again, we, we don't know. But, but here's what we do know. In, in, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13, let's, look what it says. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, get up. <laughs> get up. He said, you need to take your child, this child and, and, and his mother and you need to go to Egypt. And I want you to remain there until I come and tell you differently. For Herod, King Herod, is about to search for this child to destroy him. I mean, think about it. Everything was going great when Joseph fell asleep, but now he is waking his wife up and child up in the middle of the night. He's having to pack up everything that he can, and they, without saying a word to anyone that they've come to know, they're moving once again to Egypt. Do you think Joseph protested? I think he did. I don't have any biblical reason to think that. Matthew doesn't tell us in the text, but I think he did because that's exactly what I would have done. I mean, they just spent the last however many months getting acclimated, finding a new job, new place to live, a new synagogue, developing a new set of friends and community, and now they're having to sneak off in the middle of the night once again to Egypt of all places. I mean, why couldn't have God just protected Joseph and his family where, where they were? Why couldn't have God just got eliminated, eliminated Herod from the picture? At the very least, why couldn't have God at least let them enjoy this moment of peace? Why couldn't have God just let them sleep through the night, get a good night's rest, and then take off the next day? My answer is, I don't know. <laughs> The fact is, there are lots and lots of things that we just don't know. There's lots of things that we just don't have answers to. But here is something that we do know. We do know why the angel tells him to go to Egypt. Um, there's a couple of reasons. The first one is a very logical, very practical reason. It's one that Joseph would have been fully aware of from the very onset of this message. But Matthew tells us that there's an even deeper or more profound reason um, for going there. According to Matthew, it's the ultimate reason for why they had to go to Egypt. So I want to talk about the first one, and then we'll talk about the second one, all right? The first reason, the, the practical one, the logical one, the one that Joseph would have understood is that at that time in history, Egypt was the place where everybody ran. Egypt was a safe place. It was sort of a melting pot that was, that was governed by Rome. It's estimated that in, at that time in history, there were nearly one million Jewish people living in Alexandria at that time. So the odds are Mary and Joseph... Um, uh, may have had family there. At the very least, they would have had some sort of connection. They would have known somebody. And, and, and so it was also outside of Herod's jurisdiction. So it was a safe place to go. And so that's the first reason that Joseph would have understood. Um, but as I said, there's an, another reason. There's a second reason, more profound, a deeper, the ultimate reason for why uh, for sending them to Egypt. And Matthew tells us what that is. It's in verse 15. He says right there, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. 
So the reason the Lord sent them to Egypt was to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. It was to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Now, I know that, that if I'm going to lose some of you, it's right here. All right? I know that some of you don't really like all this historical stuff. I know that it can get complicated and confusing. But I just want to say this to people like my wife. <laughs> if you will please just work with me a little bit today. This is not a sermon. This is a sermon where you, you're going to have to work a little bit to hang on to what I have to share. I, I, I think that, I, if you will, I think I can explain it. I, I think I can um, show you what this is all about and, and why and how it applies to you and why it's important in your life even today. All right? So please work with me a little bit in understanding this second reason. I don't know if you realize it or I don't know if you remember. I've, I've shared this a, a couple of times here, but Egypt is a really big deal in the Bible. Egypt plays a big role in the Bible. In fact, Egypt is mentioned in nearly every single book of the, of the Bible. And if you just think back through the history of, of the Bible, you know that, that um, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and they took him to Egypt. And you know that when a famine broke out, all those brothers ended up having to move to Egypt themselves. And we know that once they got to Egypt, years later, they were reconciled with their brother Joseph. And we know that while they were in Egypt, that the Lord blessed their families. Blessed their families so much that they went from being a big family to a nation of people. We know, but we also know that the Egyptians turned on them and made them a nation of slaves. And we know that it was in Egypt that Moses was born, that he was raised, and that he eventually had to flee. We also know that, that after years of being in the wilderness, God sent Moses back to Egypt. He sent Moses back to Pharaoh with a, with a message. And that message is contained in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Listen to this. When Moses went back to Pharaoh, here's what he told him. It said, it, God, God said, now I want you to say to Pharaoh... He said, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, I, I know this is a little weird. Again, stay with me, Lori, all right? I know this is a little weird. But why in the world would God call an entire nation his firstborn son? I mean, that's pretty odd to us. But in the ancient Near East, we need to understand that whatever belonged to the father also technically belonged to the firstborn son as an inheritance. The, 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 Lord, in the Lord taking the Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt, he was taking them to the promised land. He was taking them to give them an inheritance, a place where they could live with him and, that they could, and so that he could give them um, their inheritance, the land, a, a place of their own. All right? So that's why God refers to them as his firstborn son. So, so God sends Moses to Pharaoh. And he says, let my firstborn son go. But we know that Pharaoh refused. He ignored the command. So God sent one plague after another. But Pharaoh continued to ignore the command. He refused to let the Israelites go. That was until, and finally, in one great act, God sent the angel of death to take the firstborn son of every household in Egypt. 
And we know that this event, this event finally convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. It was this event that led to the birth, hear that? The birth of a nation, all right? Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the identity of God's people is, and the relationship with them is almost always rooted in the Lord's bringing his people, his firstborn son, out of Egypt. I mean, over and over again, when God addresses his people, he would remind them of the exodus. Whenever God reminds, addresses his people, he would identify himself in relation to the redemp- this redemptive this great act of redemption, this great act of deliverance. For example, in Numbers chapter 15, God says, and these are just two examples of dozens, all right? But God said, for I am Jehovah, your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Yes, I am the Lord, your God. In Psalm 81, he says, for it was I, Jehovah, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Only test me. Open your mouths like a baby bird and, and see if I won't fill it. So God delivered Israel, his firstborn son, from the bondage of Egypt. He entered into a covenant with them. He gave them the promised land. He gave them this inheritance, a place where they could live. And he promised to bless, protect, and provide everything that they need and to live in their presence. Now in return, Israel, God's firstborn son, they were to, be, they were to worship him alone. They were to follow his design for life. They, in other words, they were to obey the law. And they were to serve as a light and a testimony of God's love and God's generosity and God's grace and God's mercy to the rest of the world. They were God's firstborn son. They were a reflection of him. At least they were supposed to be. But we know what happens, don't we? The Israelites, God's firstborn son, those who were to receive the inheritance, they constantly rebelled against their father. While, they were, while there were a few brief moments, they were hardly ever faithful. They refused to follow the Lord's design. They refused to trust in the Lord's provision and his protection. And they rejected the covenant, and they ended up turning to other gods. I mean, and the prophets were always calling the Israelites to repent. They were, they were always calling them to remember God's great act of deliverance and bringing them out of Egypt. And among those great prophets was a guy named Hosea, all right? Now, Hosea lived 700 years. He lived 700 years before the Exodus, all right? Here's the Exodus, all right? 700 years later, Hosea lives, all right? He lived 700 years before the Exodus. And, uh, but yet, he lived 700 years before the birth of Christ, Right, so Hosea kind of stands here in the middle. All right. Now, like all the other prophets, he spoke on behalf of the Lord. And he was constantly calling the people to repent and return to the Lord. And listen to what, what the Lord said through Hosea. It's in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. He says, when Israel was a child... In other words, when Israel was first born, when Israel was born, when Israel came out of Egypt, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my firstborn son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went away from me. 
Now, what's important to understand here is that when Hosea said that, when, Hosea, when he said this, he wasn't making some magical prediction 700 years into the future, but, but rather it, quite the opposite. What, what, what he was thinking, he wasn't talking about when Jesus and Mary and Joseph led to, left Egypt. Now, the Holy Spirit may have been thinking about that, but Hosea wasn't. It's, it, but rather, it's quite the opposite. He was looking back 700 years into the past when God took them out of Egypt. When God took his firstborn son out of Egypt. Hosea was reminding the nation of Israel of the message that God had given to Moses. That Moses delivered to Pharaoh. That Israel was God's firstborn son. He was reminding the nation of Israel of what had been promised to them. Uh, uh, regarding God's blessing, his protection, his provision, and his presence Amongst them, he was reminding Israel that because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness, they were in danger of forfeiting all that they'd been given. They were in danger of forfeiting their inheritance and having it taken away. Now, not only was Israel hardly ever faithful, they refused to repent. You know, I, I know people who have never read the Bible, often think of the Bible as this, this book full of stories of all these really good people, all these really nice people, these faithful people following a God who's gracious and kind. But that's not true. In fact, it's the complete opposite. This, the Bible is filled with stories of some really messed up people. But it is also filled with one testimony after another of a God who is merciful beyond measure, of a God who constantly pursues those he loves, who constantly pursues his firstborn son, who do, and then does what, what it takes to redeem these messed up people, to redeem, to redeem his firstborn son. All right, so with that in mind, all right, let's, let's look at the Advent passage that, that Christian just read for us a few minutes ago, which takes place 700 years in the future. Let's look at that passage and let's ask, why did God send Joseph and Mary and Jesus to Egypt? As I said earlier, there is more to this journey than just getting away from Herod. There, there's more to this journey than just the Israelites' safety, or than, than Jesus and Mary and Joseph's safety. By sending Joseph and Mary and Jesus to Egypt, God was doing something. And Matthew picks up on it. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord said through Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Stick with me, Lori. Remember, this is, remember the first time God referred to Israel as his firstborn son? That was 1,400 years earlier. And then he did it again through Hosea 700 years earlier, and, and now he's doing it again in Matthew's present day. When he speaks about the Messiah, when he speaks about Christ, when he speaks about the Son of God, when he speaks about Jesus, he, he uses that same term, who is also being called out of Egypt. What Matthew, stay with me, what Matthew wants us to see is that the Lord, that God himself, 
the long-awaited Messiah, this newborn baby, Jesus, has entered into our humanity in order to, re in order to relive the history of Israel. He has entered into humanity in order to reenact the story of God's people. He wants us to see that just as the nation of Israel, God's firstborn son, came out of Egypt, so also Jesus, God's first and only begotten son, also comes out of Egypt. But here's the difference. Read Matthew, read on through Matthew and you will see it. Where Israel, God's firstborn son, was hardly ever faithful, Jesus, God's only begotten son, is always faithful. Where Israel, God's firstborn son, continually broke the covenant by their disobedience, Jesus, God's only begotten son, continually full, fulfills the covenant but through his obedience to the Father. Where Israel, God's firstborn son, failed, Jesus, God's only begotten son, succeeds. You see, he's reliving, he's reenacting the, the, the life of God's people. Because of this, the inheritance, all that was once offered to Israel, God's firstborn son, is now given to Jesus, God's only begotten son. Because of his faithfulness, Jesus would receive all that had been lost. Now, just a little bit ago, I acknowledged how easy, how, how easy it is to feel overwhelmed by all this history. I admitted that today's sermon is complex, that it's hard to follow. And I asked you to just work with me a little bit so that I could help you to see why you should care about this and why this, what this ancient history has to do with you. And, and what I need to do, we got to tie this sermon into to last week's sermon a little bit. In, in last week's sermon, we saw that Jesus, or that Matthew tells us that, that about these magi, the, these, these wealthy um, magi, a group of foreign and pagan dignitaries who, even though they didn't share in Israel's history, they also came and traveled from faraway lands to bow down and worship Jesus. What Matthew wants us to see, what he wants us to understand is that Jesus has come not just for the Israelites, but he has come for all nations. He's come for all people. He has come for the whole world. He has come for you and for me. What he wants us to understand is that Jesus has come not to reenact just the life of Israel, but he has come to reenact the life of us all. That he's come to live a life of obedience that we were supposed to live. That he has created a righteous account one that is pleasing and holy to God the Father. He has come to serve as a light and a testimony of God's love, not just to Israel, but to the entire world. He's a substitute. You know, Rob Case, Casey sent me a, a message this week. Where is Rob? Is he in here? There he is in the back. Rob K. sent me a, a short clip. I think he got it off of Instagram. I don't have Instagram. But it was funny enough that I reposted it on Facebook. And I think it got some algorithm kind of knocked it off the, 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 the priority list because only two of you ever responded to it. Um, 
it was, it, was a, it was a video that was produced by the Babylon Bee. And I know some of you guys are big fans. I'm not. I'm just not typically a big fan of satire, but this one was really funny. <laughs> um, and so I reposted it on Facebook. If you want to, go look, look, go to my page and look <laughs> later at it. But, and the reason I posted it was because for me, it was a bit of self-deprecating humor about Presbyterians. <laughs> it, it really is funny, but... It, it, but also, even though it was poking fun at, at, at Reformed theology, it drove home a very important truth that we need to be reminded of um, during this Christmas season. And that is that we are all on Santa's naughty list. Every one of us. What, what was fascinating is Rob sent that, that to me and just an hour or two earlier, I was walking into Trinity to my pastor's meeting, and I ended up talking to some lady I'd never met before, and she just started talking to me. I, it was, uh, I've seen her around the, the church before, and she was telling me that, that her mother-in-law would tell her, her grandchildren, she, said, she would say, you better be good, or Santa won't bring you anything this year. To which her husband, the father of these children, who understood the truth of the gospel, who understood the truth about Christmas, he would shout out to his kids from the other room. He said, that's not true. You're going to get presents anyways. You're going to get presents because Jesus was good. You're going to get presents because Jesus was good in your place. You know, if you watch almost any Christmas special, which my wife and my daughter watched them nonstop. These Hallmark Christmas stuff here, anyway. But, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it. What I'm saying is, if you watch any Christmas special, it is always about us. It is, also, it is always about what we do or what we need to do or what we have done. It's always about our goodness or our good choices or the character's good choices or the happy ending, you know. But that is not the Christmas message of the Bible. Because the Bible tells us there is only one who is truly good, and that is Jesus. And that he must be good on your behalf, in your place. You see, Matthew wants us to see that just as Israel was never faithful, neither are we. At least not for very long. All right? He wants us to see that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the Savior. He is the solution to our failures, to our shortcomings, to our disobedience. He wants us to see that Jesus, God's only begotten Son, took on flesh so that he could relive the experience of God's, God's, God's only Son, the nation of Israel, the people of God. He wants to see, see that Jesus took on flesh so that he could live the kind of life that we are supposed to live. Now, yes, we know that when Jesus grew up, we know that he went to the cross. And we know that when he went to the cross, we know that by faith, if our faith is trusted in him, that, that by faith our sins are placed upon him. They're, the word is imputed to him. He doesn't become sinful, but he is treated as if he is sinful. Because by faith, our trust is that our sins are placed upon him and he makes atonement for our sin. But what 
so many people do not understand is that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He, he lived for us as well. Jesus had to create a righteous account. He lived the life that we are supposed to live. He lived a life of obedience. He satisfied all the requirements of the law. He created a righteous account. And just as our sin by faith is placed upon Jesus on the cross, his righteousness is placed upon us. We do not become righteous, but we are declared righteous. He does not become sinful, but he's declared sinful in our place. And we are declared righteous in his place. Therefore, all the inheritance that belongs to him is now also shared with us. And it all happens by faith, by the simple act of trusting and believing in what he has done on our behalf. And that, my friends, is why we are here to celebrate today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for the opportunity to, to share with what appears to me a pretty attentive body of believers today. I, I hope that what I have failed to communicate clearly that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cement this truth in, in our minds. That we are set free. We don't have to prove ourselves to our parents or to our aunts or our grandparents or our cousins or anybody else's we're together because we have your approval. Not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done. Because you've given us a righteous account. And so this Christmas season, we can just simply rest in the beauty of the mercy that you have given to us. That you've not only died, but you have lived and created a righteous account on our behalf. We praise you for this thing. In Jesus' holy name, amen.